Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Left of Straight Show with your host, Scott Fullerton, as we discuss everything under the rainbow sun, from LGBT issues to foodies, entertainment to books. Join us as we talk to some of the most interesting leaders and celebrity LGBT guests and allies on the internet. So grab a cocktail, it's always happy hour somewhere, and enjoy the show. Now, here's your host, Scott Fullerton. Well, howdy, 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 everybody. Welcome to the Left of Straight Show. It is Tuesday, July 14th, 2020. I am your host, Scott Fullerton, and I am so excited. Starting tonight, I'm going to be joined each night by my amazing interns. Tonight in the house, running the boards and making us look and sound pretty. I don't know how we look pretty, but just take my word for it, we do. Please welcome to the show. We have Royal in hand. How are we doing, guys? Hey. Good. Great. Glad to have you guys on. Han is going to be running the boards for us tonight. Royal's got uh, his very first interview tonight. He set this up Ooh. for him. You guys ready to rock and roll tonight? Yeah. Yes, for sure. Very, very cool. Well, guys, if you missed last night's show, it was our Music Monday um, we had a special correspondent, Jay Knight, in, and he gave us two great independent artists. And then we talked to singer and songwriter Travis Howard, who has written some amazing songs for himself, but also for a couple other country stars you might have heard of, like Miranda Lambert and Dirks Bentley, and our good friend, of course, Levi Christ. And then we had EDM musician Joey Suarez on with his latest hit. So great music Monday tonight in just a couple seconds, we're going to have our buddy Enoch Miller on from West Hollywood. It's going to give us our entertainment minute from the West coast. And then Royal is going to share our interview. We're going to have a live interview with Dr. DL Stewart, who's a scholar, speaker, and advocate. And then we'll finish up tonight with Matt Kai Burmaster from Canada. He's created the fearless app for independent films and television shows for LGBTQ, people of color, women and minorities. It's a great app that we're going to talk about in just a little bit. Anything exciting going on in your world tonight, Royal? Um, I am celebrating the International Non-Binary Pride Day. Um, a bunch of my friends on Facebook were talking about it. So uh, everybody's excited. Everybody's, you know, it, it's kind of rare for non-binary people to get the spotlight they kind of get pushed under the, the trans umbrella and then not really mentioned for the rest of the year. So it's nice to see everybody kind of excited, talking about their experiences, their identities, what it means to be non-binary. Um, but it's, it's a happy day. It's a good thing. Some good news for once. That is awesome. I did hear about that. One of my uh, podcasts I listened to, my buddies, Dylan Emerson, they did mention that today. I forgot about that. Thanks for reminding me. Han, anything on your radar going on? What's up with you? Um, not a whole lot. Uh, pretty 
happy about the victory against uh, the Trump administration pushing back everything on international students not being able to stay in the country um, for college right now mm. due to the fact that I go to a college with a lot of international students. Um, so it's very nice to see that they're allowing them to stay here, uh, especially in the midst of everything that's going on with this pandemic. No, that's right. They did reverse that decision. Finally, I mean, they got a lot of grief for it. Thank goodness that the, if you had not heard about it, the current administration has decided that if they were not in school in person full time, they were going to deport all these international students, which is just ridiculous when COVID's going on. But they did reverse that today. So, yeah, I, I did read that. So good job on that. I appreciate it. Uh, let's see what else is going on. Um, did you, any of you guys happen, do you guys have HBO? Do you happen to see that new documentary disclosure that Laverne Cox, um, narrates at all? I heard about it. I want to see it so bad. Yeah, me too. It's supposed to be really, really good. My friends talked about it on their show today. I am a cheap guy and don't have HBO, so I haven't yeah, got same. to see it yet. <laughs> But I'm hoping to find someone that I can go bogart their HBO code or something and watch it on HBO Go on my phone. But it's supposed to be a fantastic documentary, so I'm looking forward to that. Well, I think that it's time to bring in our special correspondent from West Hollywood. He's known as the Empress of WeHo. Uh, Enoch Miller is here once a month, which is just not enough. We talked about everything happening over in West Hollywood and Southern California area. Let's go ahead and welcome to the show, Mr. Enoch Miller. How you doing, buddy? Hi, I'm good. How are you all? We are doing fantastic. It's intern day from here on out at the Left of Straight show. So I have our good friends, Han and Royal here, who are killing it at the Left of Straight radio. What's going on in WeHo, my friend? Oh, my Lanta. There is. <laughs> it has been a good but crazy last few weeks, um, and really particularly the last month. Um, obviously, everything has been so up and down with COVID, and I think people are just a little stir-crazy and wanting to just kind of get back to a sense of normalcy. But uh, it's been a little nutso around here, that's for sure. Yeah, it's like two steps back, right? You guys are back into oh, it again. Oh, my God. Yeah, so what, like, one thing, well, first and foremost, I, I do want to say uh, it hit everyone hard here, especially in the, the Hollywood area, uh, but our hearts definitely go out to the families of Naya Rivera and Kelly Preston, mm-hmm. um, two amazing women and stars that were just taken away from us all too soon. Um, they're still working out all the details with Naya and everything that happened with her. Um, according to a press statement that came out, the, they interviewed her son, um, who survived, thankfully, and he had said basically something had happened. Um, they believe it was a strong current that pulled her under. She was able to get him back onto the boat, but um, when he turned around, his mom slipped under and unfortunately was no longer to be seen at that point until they discovered what they, again, have, have presumed to be Naya Rivera, they haven't released official details yet because they're waiting on the autopsy and dental records, but um, our heart does go out to her family and everything with that. And then also Kelly Preston, who is John Travolta's wife. Um, she passed away from breast cancer just uh, just recently. And so um, a lot of people have been putting out some really beautiful just 
words of love and support to the families out there. Um, Barbara Streisand did an amazing little uh, tweet out to John Travolta and his family. So um, just on a somber note with that, just our hearts and prayers go out to them on on such a struggle and terrible time um, going on with them right now. Right, and there was actually a third. Uh, Priscilla Presley's son passed away of a self-inflicted gunshot oh, wow. wound. Uh, 25 oh years old. He was like supposedly the spitting image of Elvis. He was his, his Elvis's grandson, and I forget wow. his first name. It's so horrible. I mean, his last name is Keo, but I don't remember his first okay. name. But he passed away as well. Um, Naya, I am. I've become kind of social media friends. With Jenna Ushkowitz, she's been on the show three times, oh, so I did text yeah. her last week and did my condolences. Just like, yeah, I don't even know what to say, um, but there, she was she was so, so sweet, and she's just yeah, she they're just all broken up about it. Yeah, and uh, the cast, but I did cast from Naya has been really just the words they put out. There's like there's like there's nothing you can say at this point. It's just it's just an awful situation. Right. No, they, I think they've all done great tributes, and her son, four years old. Uh, separated yeah. from the father, I guess, for a little while now. They were married for four years yeah. before they separated, but still very much in, in the child's life, the four-year-old's life, both of them. So he is with his dad now, so that seems yeah. to be good at least. But definitely heartbreaking, exactly. that is for sure. Yeah, and, and then forest? back to so back to everything you were saying before with California. Uh, we did take a step back in our phase plan. We went from – phase three back to phase two, unfortunately, due to a staggering increase in coronavirus uh, cases. Um, A lot of it due to uh, new testing, obviously, and more frequent testing with people, but also places like Orange County and San Diego had opened up a lot of things like pools and stuff like that, that really, I think, were potentially the cause of it. Sometimes, some potentially think the protests were a cause of it as well around here as well too there's just so many different factors it's hard to kind of keep track as to what is the root cause but a lot of it is just due to people really not following the health the county health providers instructions on on how to like just wear a mask stay six feet away wash your hands and if you're sick go get tested so um the city of West Hollywood luckily is doing some stuff you can go to weho.org slash coronavirus they have um a new executive order to provide relief to businesses and residents experiencing um, uncertainty during the coronavirus. So luckily there are different things that are being brought to, to give relief and help people out during this time, especially residents and commercial businesses. So um, we're kind of just looking forward to that. Um, A positive thing, which I'm really excited for is the West Hollywood public safety commission is going to be looking at here this week um, for police reform and looking to get an outside consultant to really take a hard look at our police department and its policies, procedures, um, how they do arrests and other kind of duties through the, the actual department. And for anyone who doesn't know, we hire the, through the LAPD our police force. So it's technically the answer to the LAPD overall like head, which is Alex Villanueva, but um, we, they are contracted out through our city, so they're going to be taking a rough look um, with an outside consultant mm. to really kind of really beef up the restrictions and what police are allowed and not allowed to do. Um, and obviously a lot of this is, is thankful to the, the whole uh, Black Lives Matter movement and really taking a hard look at um, the instance, instances and issues they've had in the past 
and how those can be done better and either changed or put in new policies to enforce that. Um, another kind of, yeah, which is, which is a big thing people have been asking for. Um, LA County, we talked about last time, had taken away about $350 million out of the LA Police Department's budget to redistribute out to, um, like, uh, unfor- uh, to just different communities that are lacking in funds, uh, after-school programs, internship programs, other stuff for, uh, for specifically uh, uh, people of color communities. So they're really taking a serious look at that across the board. Um, Los Angeles kind of was the first one to make the biggest step, and then a lot of the other independent cities are following suit um, depending on the specifics per that city um, itself. And then um, finally, kind of the big shocker that came out today, um, West Hollywood L.A. Pride is leaving the West Hollywood area. So, really? <laughs> What's yeah, going on there? Yeah, this, OMG, Barbie. So um, a letter was sent to the members of the West Hollywood City Council um, from the Christopher Street West, who's the, the nonprofit that puts on L.A. Pride every year saying right. that um, for several reasons being um, they've been doing construction on the park where they usually host it. Um, there's been a lot of changing in the demographics of the greater Los Angeles community. Um, their commitment to being responsive to the LGBTQIA plus community's needs. And then obviously their allyship and collaboration with other movements for social change are some of the basis for why they've decided to move. They actually have been in discussion about this for, I mean, for almost like at least five years, if not longer. It's been a, a several board members have brought this to, to the discussion about what about moving it? What about getting a bigger footprint? What about giving other cities the opportunity to host? Because it's LA Pride, it's not West Hollywood Pride. So there's right. been discussion about this in the past before. It's just never really it's never really had like come to fruition. I think the biggest like straw that broke the camel's back on this one was the construction on the park and the fact that that's not going to be done for at least another like three to four years. Um, oh my so gosh. Yeah. It's just, yeah. It just really, it just hinders their ability to take it. It took away like, I think they said like 10 to 15% of their overall footprint from which, I mean, which was a lot of the boost they had, which how they kind of had to rework that. And so it really, it really just, they have to rework the entire footprint every year over the last few years. And it's, um, this year was supposed to be our 50th anniversary, which obviously isn't happening because of COVID. And they're really kind of taking this time to reassess everything with it. Um, but just so you guys kind of have an idea, LA Pride brings in to the County of Los Angeles, $74.7 million of which $7.7 million is concentrated in West Hollywood and $18.2 million in the city of Los Angeles. So this is a huge event that brings in a lot of money, um, and it generates about um, $896 million in sales tax revenue for the city of West Hollywood. So this is a big deal that they're moving, and especially economically, this is going to be a big impact for West Hollywood. However... Personally, I do feel West Hollywood has been a little limited on the aspect of not everyone wanting to come from, like, the east side. It's not easy for people coming out from San Bernardino or way out east 
to come all the way out here to the west side to do that sometimes it's easier for them to go downtown when they do DTLA crowds. So I think it's a good idea if they look at potentially either rotating this around to different cities, um, finding a place like maybe Griffith Park that has a way bigger footprint and ability to spread out more to obviously give more opportunity for more aspects of the community to have their representation. Because that's the hardest part with LA Pride every year in West Hollywood is to fit every aspect of the LGBTQAIP719 <laughs> squared. Like, I mean, right. there's just so many different parts of the community you want to give equal representation to, but it's so hard when you have such a finite area to just cram everyone in there. Plus, obviously, you we the, they've been shut down multiple times in the past years for having too many people in in the festival area too as well which has led to in the past people waiting in line for four or five hours but not being able to get in to the festival right. so it's well that's going to be interesting to see how that goes for sure my friend well Enoch, yeah you we'll keep an eye out you coming on my friend thank you very much you for sharing with us buddy where, we, where can my buddies you find guys. you? you got some great interviews lately. Where can they find you? Yeah, Thank you. Yeah, we've had some really good ones. But, yeah, you can always go check me out at Empress of WeHo, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And um, always videos are always all on Facebook um, and Facebook uh, Live. So check them out through there at the Empress of We or at Empress of WeHo. But, yeah, that's where you all can find this hoe. Terrific. All right. Well, stay on the line for us, Enoch, guys. We're going to play out to a little David Hernandez, Dear My Future Self. When we come back, myself and Royal are going to be interviewing Dr. D.L. Stewart from Colorado. You're listening to Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight radio network. Dear My Future Self. Future. 
struggle, it's a struggle, it's a struggle to find me. When the world breaks. Faith, you gotta keep on. You gotta keep up, you gotta be strong. Be strong, be strong. You gotta keep up, you gotta be strong. Don't lose the faith, you gotta keep on. You gotta keep up, you gotta be strong. Be strong. When the world breaks, you stand tall. When you feel pain, you fight it off. When they go low, you go high. You're gonna the storyline Those that don't believe in you you guys and gals we are back that was our buddy david hernandez from american idol with dear my future self guys you know my intern has been killing it here this season and i'm so happy to bring on a guest that royal got for us royal has been just doing such a great job and he's going to be running this interview for us today so i'm going to turn this over to royal to introduce our very special guest and we'll be uh taking it away take it away royal Hey, so um, just a little bit about me first. My name's Royal. I'm 24. My pronouns are he, him. Um, I'm I'm gay and trans, so this is real near, near and dear to my heart, something I've always liked talking about. And my parents are lesbian, so I was kind of born into it. I didn't have a choice. <laughs> but um, introducing our first guest here, uh, Dr. D.L. Stewart is an educator, a scholar, and an activist known for his work on sexuality, gender, race, and spirituality. He's a professor in the School of Education at Colorado State University, as well as the co-chair of Student Affairs and Higher Education for CSU. His catalog is honestly gigantic. Um, there's, uh, there's over 50 journal articles, chapters, and even editing and authoring books. So um, even looking into that, as, as, as intimidated as I was, um, I really want to talk to him one-on-one. I recently saw um, his TEDx talk called Scenes from a Black Trans Life, and um, as a trans man myself, honestly, I, I'm always drawn to things like that. I love hearing about experiences that are similar to my own, obviously, because there's always that sense of solidarity. There's that sense of, you know, I'm not the only one that's going through these struggles. But, you know, as a, I'm, as a white person, it's also important to me to listen and not just, um, you know, try to co-opt the same problems, you know. But, um and because of that, just because, you know, you may know a little bit about what it is like to live somebody else's life, that doesn't mean you have the option to stop learning. So I thought that this would be a really good opportunity just for, you know, us to kind of talk about both of our experiences, but mostly for DL to talk about um, his experiences as a black trans person. So uh, starting with that, the first question I had for you just to kind of, you know, get the ball rolling was uh, where did you grow up and what kind of kid were you? 
Sure, and I guess I want to first say hi, um, and hey, hello up? to everyone who's listening. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'm D.L. Stewart. My pronouns are he, him, and they, them. Uh, and I grew up in Harlem in New York City, um, and probably at some point during the interview, my New York accent will probably come out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. My, my West Virginian one will. <laughs> okay, so don't mind that. But um, when I think about what kind of kid I was, um, I was a bit of a bookworm, um, was pretty nerdy, got teased a lot um, in school for, as a, like, elementary school for being really bookish um, and kind of nerdy and not really up on all the latest lingo and music and all of that jazz. Um, but I was also pretty shy. Um, which most folks who know me now and have known me, you know, in the last probably 20 or so years would not believe. Um, but I was a really shy kid. Um, I didn't, you know, pretty introverted. I'm still a, I'm still a huge introvert, but um, was very shy and didn't really like to talk to people, <laughs> especially if I don't know. And so my my past self would be completely shocked that I am doing something like this right now. But yeah. It's funny. Uh, even you describing your childhood is a lot like mine before I came <laughs> out and before I started transitioning, uh, you couldn't get me to talk. You couldn't pay me to talk to people. Right. I was, yeah, I, you know, it, it was, it's a lot easier I think to stay invisible than kind of deal with people right. seeing you as someone you're not. <laughs> So exactly. I think that was just how I exactly. dealt with it. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, yep. I totally get that. Yep. <laughs> I figured. But uh, <laughs> so, so for like um, for your career now, since you're working at CSU, and like I said, you have a thousand different publications. I mean, your just your catalog from just the last couple of years was like a page long. So I was reading that, and you know, <laughs> the the book form in me was getting excited. So I might have to put those aside and read those later. <laughs> But as far as now, um, where would you say you are in your career right now? And ultimately, where do you think you want to go with it? All right. So um, as a full, I'm a full-time faculty member. And so in a lot of ways, I am really at um, the top of the ladder, as it were, in terms of career stage, um, just going by my position, right? And so I have tenure. Um, I'm a full professor, which means I've been promoted up through the ranks um, from assistant to associate to full professor. Um, so in that in that place, in that way, I'm I'm um, a senior faculty member, um, which is kind of weird to say because I'm only 46. So <laughs> I'm not. I would never have guessed that. Age. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, it's a, it said I'm, 18 year faculty career, and I'm like, no way. <laughs> you did, you did uh, not yeah, look 46 actually, to me. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually wrapping up my 19th year um, next month, actually. And so, in terms of those kinds of titles and position and whatnot, I am um, considered a senior faculty. Um, I think, mean, where do I ultimately want to be? I don't know. I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, I think in some ways I'm having a midlife crisis. 
um, and <laughs> <laughs> trying to determine what I want to do with the rest of my life. You know, what do I want to do when I grow up? You know, in some ways, I'm still <laughs> trying to answer the question. But um, I think ultimately in terms of, um, you know, I don't think about it in terms of career goals, but rather um, where I ultimately want to be is doing work that has positive impact on the communities um, that are near and dear to my heart. Um, and not just the ones that I personally am a member of, but really thinking about um, marginalized and minoritized communities um, generally, that that's where I want to have impact. I want to do work that helps to um, disrupt systems of oppression, that helps to um, return, you know, life chances and possibility and want to um, increase those for other people um, that have been denied them, you know. And so that's ultimately what I want to do. I want to continue to do work that has that kind of an impact, you know, um, and I, in whatever way that comes, whether that comes through continuing in a faculty career, whether that means leaving a faculty career and going to do something else. Um, but that's the, that's the impact I want to have. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's how I would answer that question. Honestly, and uh, I probably say this a lot, but I would almost answer it the same way. <laughs> um, it, I think once you get to a certain point when you're when you kind of get to the comfortable, the comfortable point with yourself, then you start looking outwards and you're like, okay, I'm starting to feel happy with me. So I want to spread this happiness to other people and help them get to kind of where I'm at and even farther than that. But um, sure. And, that, and in a way, Royal, that is what has always motivated my career. Um, mm -hmm. I got into working in the Academy because I saw possibility within it to have some kind of positive impact um, and transformative influence on the on the experiences of um, marginalized students with race, gender, sexuality, disability, social class, um, in terms of spirituality and religion, wanting to have some kind of positive impact on their college experiences, right? And so um, that has always been at the bedrock of my career you know, and, and what I wanted, what I wanted to do. And so that's not changed, right? It's just a matter of now thinking, okay, where, what does it mean? What does it look like to do that now, right? What does that look like um, at this point in my life and in my career? Yeah, I've been asking myself the same thing. I, um, I've been told several <laughs> times that I should just become, a, a lot of trans people, I think, get told that they should become teachers just for the sole fact that, that's how you get to know people. And when you come from a position that people respect you, but they also listen to you and they listen to your life experiences and they trust you because you're, you know, a, an important figure in their life. I think trans people mm -hmm. being teachers is one of the, one of the best things that we can do, especially when you want not just to help trans people or LGBT people, but, you know, try to cover your bases. Cause I, you know, I was a kid that was gay trans and, you know, I, I have, a multitude of health, mental health issues and college is not the mm -hmm. safest or the happiest place for people like that. So, you know, uh, right. even reading, yeah, exactly. Even reading your work with that, I was like, man, you know, I got to put this stuff on my backlog. <laughs> I want to read this myself, you know, 
for me <laughs> and for you know, helping other people. But um, sure. well, with, with regards to that and that sort of um, talking about identities, marginalized identities, I was really curious, what led you to actually presenting the scenes from a black trans life TEDx talk? Because I love TEDx talks, but I have no idea how people land them. I would love to do one of right. some, well, someday in my life. <laughs> right. Well, I wasn't, I'll tell you this, I wasn't looking for it. Um, I, got, I got, so my institution, Colorado State, um, hosts a TEDx event every year, has um, for several years now. And one of the staff members who, um, who helps work with, with that event um, contacted me and said, that they that like everybody in the office wanted me as one of the speakers, um, and so they kind of um, guilt tripped and strong armed me a little bit <laughs> into doing it. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of glad they did. I'm sorry they did that, but I'm glad they did. <laughs> and and I said okay, I would do it, but then I had to think, well, what what was I going to talk about? Um, and I didn't really know off the top of my head what I was going to talk about. But I was connected to um, someone that was a friend, friend of mine at the time that said, you know, talk about what's closest to you. Talk about what you know best and what's closest to you. And in talking with him, it was like, okay, I know, I think it's about being black and trans, you know, and being a black trans person. Um, and in looking at the ways that um, black trans women in particular um, are being targeted, right, uh, for violence, mm-hmm. um, that, that they're in recognizing there's something different and there's something unique about a black trans experience um, from other trans people of different, of other races, and ethnicities, um, and wanting to assert the, to make the assertion that black trans lives matter, right, Um, particularly also in the Black Lives Matter movement, um, where, you know, there are some, not all, um, and there's definitely a movement now to, um, to reclaim this, but that black trans lives often don't necessarily get the same attention, Right, they're not put in the same conversation, um, and so we see that you know, for instance, recently in the, you know the the list, the entirely too long list of um, black lives that were taken and taken at the hands of police officers. Tony McDade, who was a black trans man, uh, was also killed mm-hmm. by the police, right? And so, but we don't necessarily, in some circles, hear Tony's name as much as we hear George Floyd's name, right? And so um, really wanting to, from multiple perspectives, wanting to um, assert the claim that black trans lives matter. Um, And by doing so, saying that my black trans life matters, you know, Um, and wanting to talk about, so what does that mean? And what does that experience look like as I have lived it, right? And so my black trans life is not like somebody else's black trans life, you know, um, but wanting to touch on things and connect some of the experiences that I have to broader conversations about race and gender, right, um, that we could have. 
So yeah, I think that's that's what led that's that's the long story for <laughs> for how we got there, <laughs> um, to it. I think that was good advice. Jump I in mean, for just... a second, Royal. I have a question because yeah. I really enjoyed the TED Talk. And then I was looking at some more research on DL and said, you really break things down well. I like the way you set both your TED Talk down into scenes. I've seen a couple of your written works where you break things down into scenes. You're very accessible in getting the information across. Does that just come from years of practice being a teacher? How have you developed your style when talking to oh. others like that? Um, it's a great, powerful yeah. tool, I think, to use. Well, first of all, thank you, Scott. I appreciate hearing that. Um, <laughs> and I think you asked a good question. Um, to be honest, I think it comes in a, in a way through my love of fiction. Um, mm. I have always, I've been a big reader. I said that earlier. Um, but I have mostly, as a kid, was mostly reading novels and plays and poetry. And I think that has continued to influence my style and how I approach writing and how I approach communicating. It's through really a performance kind of lens. I did theater a little mm. bit in high school. I did a little bit of theater in college, um, have done some scattered things here and there after college. But that whole sort of theater and performance and um, the fictional writing style, um, I think those are probably the major reasons why I communicate the way I do, you know, um, that I've told well, I think it really that. helps others learn, so I love it. Thank you for sharing it that way, because it's amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, so uh, in, in relation, basically, to the whole idea of um, scenes from a black trans life, um, when did you come out to yourself as far as, and I don't know if you've had the same experience. I've come out to myself about 10 times as different things, trying to figure out what it was I was coming out to myself as. Uh, so I eventually got to where I am now, but I came out to myself, you know, over and over again. So I don't know if you had that experience, but um, I was just kind of curious. Yeah. yeah. Yes, absolutely. I think, um, <laughs> and I really appreciate that you led with that because when I first, was thinking about this question, I was like, uh, which time? Um, did I exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it really was something, you know, as a kid um, growing up, so born in the, you know, earliest 70s, growing up in the 80s, um, going to college in the 90s, like there were, in my world, right, not many um, representations of transness, right, or even mm -hmm. any kind of gender nonconformity um, was not that present, right? So I knew about RuPaul, right, as a kid, <laughs> um, but that was it. That's all I. That's all I had was RuPaul, right? And I knew I wasn't like RuPaul clear, you know, obviously, you know, in, in some ways. And so um, as someone who was, you know, who was assigned female at birth, right, I'm not going to have a RuPaul gender nonconforming kind of experience, right? Um, mm. And so there wasn't anyone in my awareness, um, whether people I was related to or it was in my network, 
um, even what I saw in media and on, you know, on TV and in film and whatnot, there wasn't anyone that looked like me, right? Um, either like from a race and gender lens, or even from just a gender lens, it really wasn't. And so I didn't know how to name it growing up. Um, except that you know it was like I don't necessarily really like girly girly stuff. Um, but yet at the same time, tried really hard to squeeze myself into that box because this is what I'm supposed to be, right? Um, and so let me try to make myself fit. And so I spent a long time, well into my adulthood, trying to make myself fit into that box um, until finally realized this is not working. I'm exhausted trying to do this. Um, and I'm tired of you know, I have a tattoo, you know, and it was inspired by um, the Hamilton musical. Um, but there's a line in the musical where um, Hamilton says, you know, I imagine death so much it feels more like a memory. And oh, yeah. that really hit me because I spent, you know, 15, 20 some odd years Want rather wishing that somehow death would come for me than me having to continue to live the way I was. Mm. And it was in my mid-30s when I began to say, okay, I, I want to live, and I know that if I'm going to live, I can't live like this. I can't live the way I've been living. And so... that means I got to make a change and I'm going to start to make some kind of claim to myself. And so I initially came out as a lesbian, right? Um, which I think is not something that uncommon amongst oh, no, trans, trans men, right? Um, mm -hmm. I first came out as a lesbian and it was through that experience um, of accessing, you know, more butch or stud um, gender presentations that that continued to have me thinking, okay, wait a minute, I don't think it's just about dress. I don't think it's just about some kind of gender role play um, that I'm enacting here. There's something deeper here, you know. And so about, um, it's probably been, ooh, um eight, eight, nine, almost years ago now, um, when I actually began to articulate, um, seven or eight years ago, when I actually began to articulate, no, I think this is, there's, there's my understanding of my gender um, is not consistent with identifying as a woman, you know, um, and then slowly began to, as I worked that out in my own head, I'm, I'm someone who would prefer to have things worked out in my own mind before I start telling it to other people. Um, oh, absolutely. <laughs> although that yep. doesn't necessarily always work out that way. But I think I first started just being in community with other trans people. And in listening and talking with them was like, yes, this is what fits. This fits. 
you know, this fits. And then, you know, in various little ways beginning to come out and, um, you know, I've probably been in that process for, you know, six years um, or so, you know, and yeah, so it's, it's, it's been a journey, right? And, and it is, it's a journey. It's not something that happens one time. Um, as someone who is still misrecognized in terms of my gender, um, I have to come out continually, right, as trans. Um, whenever I'm in a new group of people, um, I'm still constantly having to come out as trans um, to simply avoid being misgendered in terms of pronouns, right? Yeah. So, you know, it, I'm constantly dealing with, I have, you know, when I go out to eat with friends sometimes, you know, and they'll notice the server um, will misgender me, and that happens 98% of the time. And so, you know, they've asked, you know, do you want us to, how, how, how can we support you in those situations and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't know that I really care if the server knows that I'm trans. <laughs> You know, <laughs> um, I don't know. That's a need to know basis. <laughs> right. There's, I don't know. They don't necessarily need to know that in order to get my order right. It would be nice, but I, I'm not going to like sit here and come out as trans all the time in every area of my life um, because that would be exhausting. Right. That would be exhausting to constantly correct people and their about my pronouns all the time and have to deal with the, with the reaction, right? So it's not even just mm-hmm. the telling, it's the reaction, right? Um, yep, it's like, I don't got fear. Right. It's like, I don't have time for that, you know? And so that being said, I still, you know, at work, you know, whenever I'm in a new committee meeting, you know, for the first time, I'm meeting a new person on campus, whenever we have students who are starting the program, you know, this every time. Every time, you know, and so um, I don't know, I don't know when that, I don't know that it's necessarily going to end, right, because I'm not a person who, let's say, you know, once I begin to be recognized in my proper gender, right, as my proper gender, you know, and so I, I get, I get, third and, you know, mister and all of that more consistently, right? Mm-hmm. I still don't want to be assumed to be a cisgender man, you know? I don't want to be assumed to be a cisgender mm-hmm. man. Yeah, I've, I've never um, had that, that feeling either. I like being trained. Yeah. <laughs> right. right, and, you know, and so there's still going to be um, at some level a – a willingness to disclose my transness, regardless of how my, um, how people regard my outer appearance. Does that make sense? So. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I feel you there a hundred percent. My, my journey with that was always a little bit confusing to people because I, instead of when I was younger, instead of being into sports and, and roughhousing and like the, quote unquote tomboy stuff. I you know, I did play with dolls and pink is my favorite color and everything like that, but I've tried to explain before, you know, if if I were a cis gay man, nobody would care. 
they would be like, oh, you're just flamboyant, you're just effeminate, whatever. But then you attach the trans label and suddenly it it becomes this whole huge confusing thing. <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm not that different <laughs> as much as I love being trans. <laughs> but, um, well, I, I, I'm skipping a little bit here because there's a question I really, really wanted to ask you, and it's kind of related to this. So I'm, I'm going to go there first. But what would okay. you say gives you gender euphoria? If you oh, could point yeah. to... I know. Isn't that a wonderful question? It's something nice to it, talk it about. Is. It's a good thing. <laughs> yes. We never get to talk about the happy stuff. I know, right? And we, we need to spend more time there um, because it's, it's in talking about our gender euphoria, we center ourselves in the conversation instead of centering cis people and transphobia yes, exactly. and all of that, right? And so we don't need to center them in our conversations about our lives and about ourselves. And so what gives me gender euphoria? You know, I, when I look at trans youth um, and young people who are just, like, being defiant and joyful, being defiantly joyful um, and living in their, in their skin, um, and skin physically, metaphorically, you know, um, all of that, they, that are just showing up as bold and powerful, and that's euphoric for me. Um, being in community with my trans kin, you know, when um, there are a little band of us um, who are trans <laughs> academics in my field of study, a uh, merry little band of trans uh, folk. Um, <laughs> I would never and, leave. <laughs> and when we are together, there's just so much laughter, you know, um, so much laughter, so much um, freedom, you know, um, because we don't have to worry about other people's eyes on us. We don't have to worry about the cis gaze, right? Mm-hmm. We don't have to worry about um, how we're being perceived by someone else, you know. Um, and that is a euphoric experience for me, you know. Yeah. I've always been a huge advocate for um if you know if it's something people are comfortable with, I love it when trans people date other trans people. I, I feel like there's no there's no greater comfort as a trans person yeah. to date someone who's also trans. There, you don't there's no explanation. There's no you just you, you don't even have to look at each other. There's it's just a silent language. You understand where you're coming yeah. from, even if they're from a you know it, say you know you're a trans man, they're a trans woman. They still understand you in a mm-hmm. way that a cis partner just can't. No, mm. no offense to cis people, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, there, it, there's definitely that 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 feeling of kinship, that feeling of companionship that is, has been always yeah. very comforting to me. And like you mm-hmm. said, trans, I've mm-hmm. never met people that are as funny as trans people. I swear to God, we are the funniest mm-hmm. people on the planet. <laughs> We're hilarious. We are yeah. hilarious. Whew. Yeah. Well, it, it kind of in that same. Um, Avenue. The another question I had was, um, what what would you want cis? And for anyone listening that doesn't know why we keep saying cis, that's just a non transgender person. But um, what would you right. want cis people to understand about being trans? Uh, I two things. 
important that every trans experience is different, right? Um, and so as you, you noted this um, in your introduction, Royal, that you and I have different trans experiences, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my trans experience is going to be different than any other person's. And so there's no, we're not a monolithic community, um, there are differences in how we came into our transness and how we are living out our transness. Not all of us are going through a biomedical transition. Not all of us deal with gender dysphoria. Not all of us, you know, are going to use non-binary pronouns. Um, and not all of us, therefore, on the flip side, are going to use, you know, binary pronouns. Um, mm-hmm. The like all of those, the, the the trans experience is as different as there are numbers of trans people, right? And so I yes, think that's an important so thing, and to not therefore try to bottle people and box people into this is what it looks like to be trans, you know, and and trying to make themselves an authority on transness based off the one trans person they know or saw on TV or heard on a radio program, Um, (laughs) you know, so, and I think, so that's the first thing Not you know, every trans experience is different. I think the second thing I would want um, cis people or non-trans people to understand about being trans is that it's not about my body, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Cis people get real caught up in trans people's bodies. Oh my God! Yeah, and it's like that's that's not what it's about, you know. Um, Even if I am modifying my body in some kind of way, that's not what it means to me to be trans, you know. So stop fixating on what's between people's legs, right? Or what is on their chest, (laughs) what their chest looks like, or how Mm -hmm. deep their voice. Right, Chase um, Strangio, um, who is a lawyer, is a trans lawyer, uh, works for the ACLU. Um, he tweeted out, you know, so he was getting a lot of interviews and everything after the Supreme Court decision a couple weeks ago, and and then all of a sudden he's getting this flood of people who are offering to do like free. Uh, voice therapy so that um, his voice, you know, would drop lower and um, also he would sound more like a man, quote unquote, you know, all of that kind of nonsense. And he was like, stop trying to gender type people based on their voice. You know, first of all, why are you trying to gender type somebody based on their voice? Just stop it. You know, and I'm not interested in doing that. And so, but the cis people have a fixation with the trans body, right? Um, and that's not what it's about. That's not what being trans is about for me, you know? So I think those would be the two things. With that, um, something I see a lot, and it, it's frustrating because I know where it comes from, and it comes from a good place, and I can understand why somebody would think that it's a compliment. But in my opinion, it is never a compliment to tell somebody how well they passed. That would never, 
Mm. Okay, I'm glad I'm glad we agree because that drives yeah. me up the wall because it then it becomes, well, if I didn't pass, what would you say then? You got nothing nice to say then? Right. <laughs> like it my right. my value does not revolve around whether or not I passed. About earlier, my desire to pass does not come as a desire to pass as this. It it's a desire to pass as myself. And passing right. is inherently a cis ideal because there, if if you don't pass as cis, then what can you pass as? So right. yeah, I, I'm the same way there. I'm. <laughs> it ain't a compliment. I'm sorry, but it ain't. Well, at least for me, maybe mm-hmm. I can't speak for other people, but it's not for me. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Mm-hmm. So, um, oh, we still have a little bit of time. Cool. So uh, another one I really wanted to get to as far as. Um, with trans experiences, but also talking about black experiences, uh, what are some of the ways, and we kind of talked about it, but I still kind of, that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about mainly. So I'm trying to push that point, but what are some of the ways that black trans experiences differ from those of their white peers? Sure. Um, And it's a huge category, I know, but anything you want to talk about. (laughs) So I think, um, it lies in the recognition that black trans people and other trans people of color, right, are having mm-hmm. to deal with both issues of race and racism, as well as gender and transphobia and cis sexism and all of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and having those multiple identities means that we are also having to navigate the interactions and the intersections. So here's where intersectionality comes into play. Um, The intersections of multiple systems of oppression, right, that are feeding off of each other. And so there's a particular way that as a black person, my gender has been racialized in the first place, right? regardless mm-hmm. of having a trans identity or not. And mm-hmm. so we think about my TEDx talk, right, that where I, where I mention in there the ways that black women's femininity, even cis black women's femininity has always been denied, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where cis black women have always been made out to be masculinized, right? They did it to mm-hmm. First Lady Obama right? Um, There are ways that um, cis black men's masculinity has been exaggerated and made um, into this grotesque, right, version of itself, right? So there are ways Mm -hmm. that uh, regardless of being cis or being trans, black people's genders have been contorted and convoluted in the white gaze already, right? So we were never able to, in terms of white, white supremacy, been able to achieve, right, um, cisness and the, the ideal cisgender person. We were never able to attain that, right? And so then you layer being um, trans on top of that, and, and, it, and it mixes together, right? So it's, it's not just a, sheet, uh, a layered cake. You know, but it mixes together in a way that when we bring transness into the picture, 
there's an even greater, um, it's multiplied. That effect is multiplied, right? So you're dealing with the rigidity of cisgender norms for behavior and look, right, at the same time as you're confronting the rigidity of white supremacy and how that behavior is supposed to be and how you're supposed to look through the lens of white supremacy, right? And it's a double bind, right, that white trans people don't have to deal with, you know, um, because in many ways, once a, um, a white trans person can so-called pass, they don't necessarily have to deal with transphobia anymore in that way, right? They're not dealing with directly, um, they, they, they sort of, they fit back in, right? So in the ways that mm -hmm. they fill out of fitting in, they now fit back in. Right, and there's no way that I will ever fit back in. You know, I go from mm. being presumed, let's say, as a to being presumed to be a cis woman, a cis black woman, and am threatened in those all of those kinds of ways of perhaps being murdered by the police in my house, which is where most black women who are murdered by the police it happens in their homes. Right. Mm -hmm. So I go from that threat and that danger to, okay, let's say I'm recognized as a black man and I'm recognized and mistaken for a cis gender black man. Well, then when I'm out in the street, I'm in danger by the police. Right. On mm -hmm. the street right. at a traffic stop. Right. So there, there becomes no safe space to retreat to. Right. Um, mm -hmm. where there could be, right, and it's not to say that white trans people always elect to do this because many do not, um, but there's a way that, you know, at some point you don't necessarily perhaps don't have to be known as trans, right? And then you mm -hmm. get all the benefits of white supremacy still, you know, um, where I will never have that luxury. We'll never have that luxury, no matter what side of the gender divide I fall on. I've noticed that a lot with um, white trans men, like people from my community. For white trans oh. men, once you're on testosterone for, you know, however right. long it takes, you, like you said, you slip back into that white, you get the benefits of being white, and if you pass mm -hmm. by cis standards, you get the benefits of being a man. And then I think a lot exactly. of white trans men, they fall into that. They fall because that's, they feel like that's how they're going to pass a lot of times. So I think a lot yep. of them fall into that toxic white masculinity and they just add to the problem. <laughs> they yep. make the problem exactly. even worse than it was before. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, exactly. I, I've definitely seen that in my own community. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. All right, Laura, Honestly, we're that's... about seven minutes away from a hard stop here, so I want you to kind of okay. wrap up with uh, what's what's one of your last questions you'd like to ask DL tonight. Perfect. I'm glad I had time for one more because I, I wanted to get to a happy place. Um, so okay. the, the final question that I had was, um, what do you hope the future looks like for uh, 
you can say either trans people or if you want to specify black trans people, just what, what do you think the a hopeful future looks like for us? Oh, uh, and I'll, I'll talk about black for black trans people. And the thing is, once black trans people have these things, I think all trans people will get them as well. Um, totally fair. And that is to be able to just live, to just live, to be, you know, to be able to move about the world freely without concern. Um, I think, I hope the future holds um, the, the allowance and the opportunity to be sketchy, to be ridiculous, to be ratchet <laughs> if we want to be, and that not put us at risk, that it not um, somehow label our community in some kind of negative, stereotypical way, that we are able to just be and just be ourselves and be ourselves in all of the different ways, right, that we come into existence and that we do exist. Yeah, that's what I hope the future holds. Honestly, that's, that's one of the reasons I wanted fantastic. you to come on so badly. Yeah, <laughs> he's a great speaker. Every time I he started talking, I'm, I'm like tearing up again. <laughs> well, gentlemen, this has been definitely enlightening for me. I appreciate you guys taking the time. I want to finish it, DL, with a with a last question that I have. I mean, we really at a interesting time in history when we're have the conflux of Black Lives Matter and Pride Month last month where we're finally recognizing Black Trans Lives Matter and bringing this all together. What do you think that conversations are finally starting to happen, at least online? Who knows what they're doing behind the scenes? What can we do, maybe one or, one or two things, three things we can do to improve our communications with black and or trans people as a society to kind of keep the conversation going and not letting it disappear. Oh gosh, Scott. Okay. Um, Quickly. I think one thing is always to start by listening, to shut up and listen and listen to black trans people. Right. Hmm. Um, Trust that black trans people are the experts on our own lives. You know, mm-hmm. that's step one. Shut up, right? Um, <laughs> nice. Shut up and listen. <laughs> and then step two, I think, is to then do the things that black trans people say people need to do, you know, um, and all the ways right. from all the ways that you can show up. Um, and that's in disrupting um things that somebody else is saying, even if it's a relative, a coworker, a neighbor, whatever, you know, to be willing to step up and disrupt violence that happens in people's words, you know, um, to donate and give money to um, trans people and trans organizations that are helping to support the survival of trans people, right, mm, um, and right. black trans people. Like, that, do those two things. Start with that. Shut up and and do stuff. What that black trans <laughs> people tell you to do. <laughs> I like it. I need a bumper sticker. Shut up and do something. That's gonna be my next bumper <laughs> sticker on my car. I like it. 
Well, Dr. D.L. Stewart, it's been amazing having you on. Thank you very much, sir, for coming on. Let uh, my listeners know where they can find you. Are you on social media? Uh, do you have a student email address they can find you at the college there? Or if people wanted to reach out, how can they find you? Sure. Um, the best way to reach out to me, I'm on Twitter, um, and I'm active on Twitter. And so my handle is at um, D-R-D-L Stewart, so Dr. D.L. Stewart. Um, on my email, you can find me, my email address on Colorado State University's um, directory really easily. Um, and those are, yeah, sure, those are the two best ways to get a hold of me. Fantastic. Well, thank you for coming on, Royal. You did an amazing job. Thank you, sir. Yes. Guys, if you guys want yes, to talk to Royal, um, Royal is one of the interns taking care of our social media. You can reach out to Royal at, at Left of Straight Radio on Twitter or Instagram. That's at L-E-F-T-O-F-S-T-R, the number eight, radio. And Royal will be able to get those messages. Royal, you got the last two minutes here. Anything you want to wrap up with? Um, I, I really just want to thank you, Dr. Stewart, for coming on. Um, like I said, that this was kind of my, my first endeavor of doing anything like this. Um, it went amazingly, I think. I mean, that's just my opinion. You did a good but, um, Thank you. <laughs> I, um, and for me, you know, I grew up in um, a, a very tiny little village in the middle of Ohio with less than 5,000 people in it, and it was 98% white people, and we were all poor. Mm. So my experience mm. is a lot different, and pretty much my whole life has kind of revolved around getting out of that mindset. So even being able to, like you said, just shut up and listen to people has been easily the greatest part of growing up for me and getting out yeah. of that tiny Ohioan town mindset. <laughs> but like I said, mm-hmm. thank you so much for coming on. Um, it was awesome talking to you. I I always love hearing, you know, the, the things we have in common, but I like hearing the things that I can learn from even more. So I really yeah. appreciate you coming on. And thank you, Scott, for giving me the opportunity. <laughs> Yes. No problem. Thank Gentlemen, you. stay Thank on the line for me. You. There you go. Gentlemen, stay on the line for me. I'm going to throw it back to Han in the studio here in a second. We're going to play a little song. When we come back, we're going to have Matt Kai Burmaster. He is a actor, filmmaker, and an app creator. He created an app uh, where you can watch um, television and movies specifically dedicated to LGBTQ people of color uh, women, and it's a fantastic story. So we're going to talk to Matt on the way back. So uh, go ahead and take it away, Han. You guys listen to the Left of Straight show right here in the Left of Straight radio network. Holding out for everything that I've been. The pull is strong, surrendering into it. Reaching out and aiming true to be with you. But I know I'm still breathing As I break all the faults to face anymore I still need you to break it I need a night, need a night of whispers Come lay me down For the peace I'm missing Can you save me from tonight From a night of distance Come lay me Come lay me down 
but yeah, it's it's been it's been interesting. And my husband now, of course, he usually works at the office, but now he's working with me at home too. So there's a little bit of you know too many doses of each other, but <laughs> <laughs> that tends to happen when we're when we're in close quarters for that long. But it just you just need a little separate vacation weekend hiding away from each other, and then it's love and first sight once you get back together, right? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's been great overall. Like, it's it's nice. We get to have meals together and such. And overall, it's been great. And I imagine if we had kids, then it would be challenging. But luckily, we don't have kids yet. So there you go. Dreams and a future time for sure. Let's start with a little bit of background, buddy. It's your first time on the show, Matt Kai. So talk about growing up in Canada. Where there did you grow up and what kind of a kid were you? Well, um, that's a great question. I grew up in Sudbury, which is about four or five hours north, depending on how much you speed, north of Toronto. So it's a medium-sized town. It's a small town, but it's not certainly not a city either. So somewhere in between. I grew up as a, as a kid who always loved performing. I was always wanting to be the center of attention. I was always doing little shows in my backyard, dancing with the cart in the grocery store. I've always just been a very animated person. I knew from a young age that I was going to be in entertainment in some way or another because that's just who I was. And, of course, the city I grew up in, Sudbury, maybe wasn't ready for me. So I moved to Toronto <laughs> when I was uh, done high school uh, for university, and basically I never looked back. So <laughs> I've been living in Toronto for, oh, geez, like nine years now, if you don't count the uh, time I spent living in New York City at the start of the year. Nice. Well, talk about four to five hours north of Toronto. I've been to Toronto in the wintertime, and it's cold there. I can't imagine four to five hours north. That had to be some exciting weather. Well, and while four to five hours north is not even as north as you can get, Canada is quite large in terms of geographical area. So, yeah, it can get pretty cold. I remember sometimes with the wind chill, you know, if you didn't wear a face covering in the winter – I mean, your face would literally freeze. So, yeah, it's, oh uh, it's fun. And I lived on a lake, too, so there was a lot <laughs> of wind chill that came off the lake. I lived on a lake called Long Lake. So you can imagine, it was a huge lake. Yeah, it, it got pretty cold up there. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a spoiled city boy now. There you go. Well, Toronto is one of my favorite cities in the world. I love going up there. When I first moved here... I was born and raised in Southern California, and I like to say that I've been banished to Northeast Ohio. But when I first moved here, the Canadian exchange rate was really good for Americans. So I was able to get almost like a 151%. So I would bring $200 up, get $300 at the border, which would pay for my hotel room for the night, and just have a blast in Toronto. I just absolutely love that city. It's like a clean, small New York City to me. But I love that city. That's fantastic. When I was in New York City, I, I met someone, and they said, where are you from? I said, Toronto. They said, oh, my God, I wish we had a subway as clean as yours. <laughs> exactly, um, right? <laughs> and although, although Toronto definitely has a cleaner subway, New York City's subway operates far better. Um, the infrastructure and the system around it are, is just fantastic, quite frankly. I had a great time using the transit over there. So, um, And interestingly enough, nice. the guy who ran the transit for Toronto actually then – moved on and ended up running the transit for New York City. So it was the same guy at the helm of both. Well, there you go. All right. Very cool. Well, you're such a great advocate for LGBTQ+. Talk about your story. When did you first come out to yourself, and where did you kind of first find your LGBTQ tribe at? 
it was challenging for me because, like I said, the, the area I grew up in, if it wasn't so gung-ho about people who were out there like I was, it certainly was not a place that was welcoming of LGBTQ. The place where I grew up is also very, very white, very straight, and very, shall we say, neck of the woods. There wasn't a lot of people around me that I could identify with. I was lucky enough that I went to a high school that was a little more accepting. I went to the Performing Arts High School in Sudbury. There's only one. And so that made it a little easier because at least then I was surrounded by people who, you know, were LGBT as well, and the teachers were a little more understanding, et cetera. But, yeah, it was really it was really when I went into high school that I started to discover my sexuality and who I was and where I fit into it all. That's probably when I came out to myself, was probably grade nine. I knew it before that, but that's probably when I really, really fully realized it. Then when did you kind of find your LGBTQ tribe, would you say? Oh, wow. When did I find my tribe? I think that that is something that you pick up over the years. I think over the years, people come and go. I think there's people who have been meaningful to me. Certainly, I had a friend that was the first friend that I remember coming out to in high school. And we've disconnected since, but those moments you remember and those moments are, are special, even though those people may not be in your life anymore. So I cherish those moments. When did I find my tribe? I don't know. I don't know. What do we consider a a, a tribe nowadays? A group of friends or connections? that's true. I mean, it kind of depends on on your own individual meaning of it. I just mean for an LGBT community in general, when you kind of first found yourself accepted in your tribe, whether it be college, whether it be community theater, whether it be in um, the gay scene of Toronto, when did you kind of first feel part of the, excuse me, feel first part of the community? Yeah, I think it was for sure in high school. In high school, I mean, definitely my high school itself, but I was also doing community theater at the time as well. It's almost like you know me or something. Yeah, it was, it was through both of those elements that I, that I first found the community of people who accepted me for who I was and made it easy for me to not have to worry about it so much. That's where it starts. I, it start, I mean, grade nine, things just got better as of grade nine. I mean, elementary <laughs> school was not a fun time for me. I remember right. there was a time when uh, I had long hair. My mom, bless her heart, was always about letting us kids, I have three sisters as well, decide for ourselves how we wanted our hair, how we wanted to dress, what toys we wanted to play with. So from that angle of things, she was very much an advocate for, you know, Boys don't have to only wear blue. Girls don't always only have to wear pink. A Barbie nice. can be played with either gender. A G.I. Joe can be played with either gender. So my mom in those ways was quite progressive. In other ways, in ways we might consider LGBT, quite the opposite. So it's interesting how you can get a piece of something from somebody, but you might not get the whole thing you need. Right. Does that make sense? No, well said. Yeah, and it's a lot of different influences, right? It's what's best for our kids, but also what we're ingrained in through religion and things like that. So very understandable. I can understand that for sure. Well, talk about... Exactly, and I came from a religious upbringing as well. Right. Talk about... I mean, you were given back very early. I, I read where you had started a drama camp for kids and teens back when you were still in college. 
talk about that giving spirit that's created in you and talk about that experience creating this camp to help others. How did that improve your acting as well? Yes, that was a huge passion project for me. I actually started thinking about it when I was in high school uh, because I was so inspired by the drama camp that I went to when I was a kid and they had closed since then. And so I thought, what if I made something similar for the next generation of kids? And so I toyed around in my brain, and I had done some entrepreneurship workshops and such in Sudbury, and I ended up uh, connecting with the regional business center there and discussing some grants and discussing some, you know, business partnership opportunities, and that kind of spawned into this drama camp thing. And so I ran that for three and a half years. I ran that in Sudbury. And it came to the point where I decided that although it was very successful, I needed to focus on, um, you know, a, a more long-term career um, goals. So right. I still miss it to this day, though. It was a fantastic opportunity. I loved teaching the kids. Um, we also did programs for teens. Um, it was a really, really fun and enriching opportunity. And a couple of the students, actually, that were part of the program uh, keep in touch with me to this day. So it's it's pretty neat to see that they're sort of grown ups or, you know, in college or what have you. And it, it's, it's nice to see that they, they have flourished. That is awesome. I love hearing that. And then talk about now we're four years later and you founded your own company, uh, Pomegranate and with Deanna and talk about how that came about or how did you guys come upon this project? Yeah, so basically we studied film together at Seneca College, and so that's how I met her originally. And we just said, you know, that we really wanted to jumpstart our career. A lot of times actors, when they get started, they go to a lot of auditions or they do a lot of classes or what have you to try and boost their resume, to try and get hired by Netflix or Hulu or, you know, whatever's shooting these days. We took a different approach. We said, why don't we make our own stuff? Why don't we make our own shows, make our own movies, and put it out there into the world? So we just kind of did it. We just kind of started. <laughs> we made a short film. Then we made a series. And then it got to the point where we said, where are we going to put this stuff? We didn't want to put it on YouTube because we didn't really want to give it away for free. I mean, it, it costs a little bit of money to make, more than a little bit. So right. we needed to monetize it in some way. And, you know, the platforms like Netflix and so on uh, are really geared towards more established companies and not so much towards independent creators. There are exceptions. There are some movies that get through. But generally, they're because they've partnered with a distributor that already works with those networks or those platforms. Right. So we decided that we'd make our own. And we had no money, we had no plan, nothing, and we just tried it. And we said, well, what's the worst thing that could happen? If it doesn't work, then we just say, oh, well, it didn't work, we move on. Well, the opposite happened. People kind of flocked to it. Um, we had a lot of early supporters. When we first launched, it was not a very good service. <laughs> I mean, it didn't have very many <laughs> titles on it. You know, it was a little bit glitchy and so on. But we made it an affordable price and we said, Hey, is there anyone willing to support us? People did. 
And then lo and behold, now we're three and a half years in and it's just growing and growing and growing. And there's new filmmakers that sign on every day and it's amazing. I'm, I'm like actually just blessed and honored that people are offering me so much support. Well, it's, it's an amazing service. And I think independent films and TV projects, I mean, I was, I started my podcast five years ago and I basically made my first three years off of web series from all my friends in California and New York that were doing pretty much the same thing, creating their own products because there is, even though there's a glutton of networks, it feels like for actors, it's actually very tough to get on these limited roles. So it's great to create your own content. And I love that you did that. How did you get through the technical side? Were you able to bring on, some good people? Did you learn it all yourself? Or how did the technical process come about for you? Um, I, I would love to say that I'm smart enough to have learned it all myself, but no. There's, <laughs> there's been a, an awesome team of people who have been behind this. So when we first started, we just basically used an out-of-the-box system that was very not technically savvy just to try it out to see if it worked. Then when we found out people were joining us, then we said, okay, we're going to take this more seriously. We're going to start the company. Um, we rebranded and um, we launched version two that was more sophisticated. And uh, it was at that time that we brought on a few developers. So we have a team of developers and, uh, and we have a curation team that helps decide which content gets added and which content gets rejected and that and so on and so forth. And then we have some wonderful people who help us out with social media and marketing and PR. It's kind of grown over the years. It's amazing. And did the fearless start first or talk about Yaflix as well? Were those kind of simultaneously born or did one lead to the other? Talk about those two separate projects you put together. Yeah. So, I mean, pomegranate is the name of the company um, and we run both fearless and Yaflix. Fearless obviously is a streaming service. We know this. And Yaflix is a movies, news and review site. Um, we really created Yaflix. I'm going to be honest with everybody so that we could promote the titles on Fearless, point blank. That was our goal. And since then, it's spawned into some really interesting initiatives. We do programs where we do artist spotlights. We've partnered with different film festivals and so on and so forth. But yeah, the idea is they have similar goals. The goal is we want more independent films to be out there and seen. And we also want to make sure that there's more representation and inclusion in the industry you know, LGBTQ, women in film, black and indigenous stories, stories about people with disabilities, mental health, stories about the intersection of like religion and sexuality, certain things that just aren't getting covered. We want to push them forward in a really forceful way. Right. No, I love that. I love different channels that represent all of that is fantastic. Talk about your first series that you created for it, which was the very first one that you put forth. And how did it come to you? Yeah, so sure. So the, the first one was technically a short film called Stripped. And it was loosely based off personal experiences. And then the rest just kind of came off the top of my head. I just kind of wrote that one. <laughs> I partnered with a couple friends who helped me refine the script. And then we shot that over the course of three days. Um, we put it out there. Wow. And that was kind of the first project. We spent almost no money. Like I want to say that one, we only spent like $2,000 or something. can't remember the exact budget, but it was something in that vein. So that technically was the first, but the first one that had any sort of budget and complexity to it 
what's called So That Happened, which is streaming on Fearless, obviously. And that one was a project for me that I felt quite passionate about. The idea was I worked with people that I knew from film school and et cetera, and I wanted to create a comedy that was lighthearted, but that was also a little bit um, raw and, shall we say, fearless. This was, of course, before the name Fearless existed. And right. so we created a series that, uh, that the, the cast, when they read the script for the first time, they said, you know, Matt Kai, this is like the show Shameless meets Disney. Because <laughs> I had those sort of raunchy um, elements, but also the elements of heart and family and community. So it kind of has a double-edged sword. It's, it's a comedy for sure, but there's also like really strong messaging in there. So I wanted to create something that was both. And so it's a little bit kooky. It's, it's, you know, it's a sitcom. It's a sitcom, really, when you think about it. Right. And I love the titles. I mean, I've been uh, fascinated with titles way back in Friends for the one that with. And yours always starts with totally. And I just like the way that it kind of encapsulates everything. Is that something you thought of? Or how did, how did the uh, titling of all the episodes come for in that? So, yeah. So, uh, so every episode in that series starts with the word totally. Um, I can't remember what all of them are. There's totally effed is, I don't know if I'm supposed to swear, so totally effed. Yeah, that one came first. Originally, they all had different names. When I wrote the one totally effed, then all of a sudden another one popped into my brain and another one and another one, and they all turned into totally. Um, It's loosely based off the characters um, Brie and Britt in the series, who are like these two ditzy girls. I don't know if you've seen the series. I do but, see uh, a couple of two ditzy. Yeah. Cool. So those are the two uh, ditzy girls who are like always talking at the same time as each other, and they're like always speaking in hashtags and that sort of thing. And it was loosely based off those characters, which I kind of fell in love with since day one. They're a minor character in the series, and yet they're one of the first characters I wrote. So... It's really interesting. I should also mention that the uh, the lead actress, Ali McLean, uh, she was integral in the writing of the script as well. Um, she added a lot of humor to it. You know, she was, I, I sort of wrote the original script and then she came in and she helped me tweak and, and refine. So really, I owe a lot of it to her as well. Nice. And talk about the next short committed. That was, uh, that's something else. <laughs> uh, a little darker. Talk about uh, how that came about. Yeah, so funny enough, the two things I love in terms of entertainment are comedies and dark, dark, dark thrillers. They couldn't be more <laughs> different. So right. is a is a, I, I don't know if we want to call it a psychological thriller. You know, one person has told me it's borderline horror, but the idea is that there's a hitman and he, um, and he also is queer, LGBT. And he's married. And these two elements are elements that I personally haven't seen. And I just said, I want to start making content that has elements put together that I haven't seen. So that one is obviously entirely fictional. It all just (laughs) kind of came out of my head one day. I just had this idea. 
And interestingly enough, Tony Babcock, who is the guy who uh, stars in, in it with me, and he's also been integral to the production of all of the things I've worked on, with the exception of the ones before I met him, of course. And Tony Babcock, I just, I called him up and I said, listen, I have this idea for this short film. And he said, okay, give it to me. And I remember mentioning the concept, very similar to what I said to you just now. And he paused for a moment and he said, is it messed up that I love it? (laughs) (laughs) So that was the moment where I was like, yeah, we need to make this. It's, you know, it's too good not to. So it's it's that's definitely you know way different from you. my other stuff. I like it. That's when you know a friend a friend gets you when they kind of give comments yeah. like that. That's awesome. <laughs> and then you guys went on together with it's complicated too, which I love the premise of that. I love the storytelling and the filming of that. That was kind of remarkably done, my friend. I really thought that was impressive. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah. So basically, we filmed both of those um, back to back quite literally. Uh, We shot the one within a couple weeks, and then there was like maybe two weeks in between, and then we shot the other. So they were, they were very close together in, in all ways, pretty much the pre-production for both was done at the same time. And it's complicated as a very, very different series. And it's something that kind of came from Tony's mind a little bit more than mine. But basically he said, what if we made a teen series that was loosely based off our own teen experiences. So this series is quite literally based on our own experiences. Tony experienced some, some uh, difficulties in high school related to sports and the kind of homophobia that permeates through that. And I was experiencing some issues about the intersection of religion and sexuality. So, you know, whereas a lot of, people who have a religious upbringing may say, oh, I got to shove that religion out of my brain because I'm LGBT. I took a different approach. I said, like, do I have to get rid of my spirituality in order to be LGBT? Truth is, I don't think you need to. So, you know, that, that's, those were the angles that we took from it. And then we decided to take an interesting approach to how we filmed it by making it almost like a music video. There's very little dialogue in the series. It's mostly text messages, um, FaceTime calls, social media, et cetera. We wanted to see if we could make pretty much a whole series with almost no talking at all. Yeah, I thought it was amazing filmmaking because I really wasn't expecting when the when the first talking scene happened, it kind of jarred me almost because it was done so well without it. And it's like, wow. And you didn't really pay attention that there was any because you had – the thought bubbles, the text bubbles in there. So you don't, your mind's not even realizing that there's no sound until you hear the first speaking. Then it's like, whoa, okay. But I just thought it was masterful filmmaking. I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. I, I owe a lot of that one as well to Brad Dworkin, who was our director. Um, it, it, very interestingly, Tony Babcock said, I think we should hire Brad. And Brad came to us and said, listen, I am not LGBT. I am straight. I am cis, you know, cisgendered. I'm not sure that I'm the most appropriate person for this. And we sort of disagreed. We said, listen, Tony and I are both LGBT, and we have a great story here. We've brought on other LGBT people to collaborate as well. And at the end of the day, this story is about teen angst 
and teen struggles. And these are things that Brad knows very, very well. He's a dad as well, and he's also worked on these sorts of projects before. So Tony and I said, you know what, you're perfect for it. It doesn't matter that you're not LGBT yourself. And interestingly enough, as we were shooting the series, that couldn't have been more true because a lot of the things that Brad was was doing in his direction were absolutely universal. And it just goes to show you that a lot of times LGBT struggles are paralleled with other struggles that other people are having. And they're different, so we should talk about them and we should make stories about them. But if everyone were to watch stories about things that, that don't apply to them, I think the world would be a better place. Exactly. And, and I think that's so well said. And I love... I don't know if I read it on your website or where I read it, but you have a marvelous quote about how love is truly the most important thing to you and trying to get through that. And, and if we based, if we all based ourselves on that, loving one another, the world would be a lot better place. And I think it really comes through in the projects that you promote. And I think it's really come true this past pride month. We've kind of joined together with black lives matter and we're actually seeing that coming together of our communities a little bit more, uh, paying a little more p- attention to our trans brothers and sisters. Do you kind of feel that coming together a bit as well? Yes, 100%. And even in Operating Fearless, we've always had a lower percentage of Black, Indigenous, and trans content on the app. And it's something that we're always actively working towards getting more of because we see that there's a massive gap. It's not only that you know, racism and such and transphobia exists, but it's also that there's not enough media being made about these topics and these issues. So people can't watch what doesn't exist. So, and I know that there's some great content that exists. There really is some amazing content that exists and some amazing content that's on Fearless as well, but there's not enough of it. I heard little mention about, uh, from, from a trans advocate that said, what we need is, and I'm paraphrasing, but what we need is more trans content because then the random clumsy version of representation doesn't matter as much because there's a lot more of it. Whereas right now there's so little, especially trans content, but also black and indigenous content that we need to be pushing those forward in really strong ways. And people who are not trans, who are not black and who are not indigenous need to be watching this stuff. It's also just like, it's really good stuff. One of the most popular series on Fearless is called Giving Me Life. And it's about black and Latinx millennials in New York City. And it's totally fantastic. And it's an LGBT series as well. It features, you know, straight and various sexualities in it. So this is just, at the end of the day, good content. And you don't have to be part of these groups in order to watch it. Right. And I th- I think it's kind of, Coming together, I mean, there was a great post today. This was, uh, I'm not sure when we're going to air this, but I know today I read about Halle Berry um, talking on her social media. She was offered the role of a trans man, and she actually sought out some advice on it, was kind of told about the process and what it's like in that community, and turned down the role knowing that it should one, if she could do it justice, and two, that it really should be played by a trans actor. Uh, and I thought that was kind of an amazing um, realization from her. And I think more people are starting to come to that realization. I know we had, I think it was Scarlett Johansson last year that had a little issue with that or something. But 
we're starting to get a little more awareness out there. Do you feel that? I, I do feel it. And I think one of the things, once again, is that if there were a million trans roles that existed, it wouldn't be such a big deal if someone who is not trans took a trans role. The reason why it's right. such a giant problem is because trans actors can't get roles. There's no roles written for them, or there's very few. So when someone who is not trans takes one of those roles, those people don't get the opportunity to play that role. So I think it's important. I think that there's also you know, more opportunities for scripts to be non-racially defined. I think a lot of times, and I've seen it many, many times because I audition for projects and I see the descriptions and they will say a specific race when there's nothing in the script that would require someone to be of that race. And I think that they could open up castings to, uh, you know, multi-race applicants. There you go. Well said. Well, let's brag on the app a bit as we start to close out here. Tell me about how do people that that are coming up with this content, how do they reach out and how do they get featured on the app? You said you have a, a curator for the event. Is there a way people can reach out to you or how do you guys find this content besides the one that you actually make yourself? Well, that's a great question. The content I make myself is an extremely small sliver of the app now. Originally, when we first started, it was a we didn't have much content, but now because we have so much content, what I make is a tiny, tiny portion of the app. Uh, we work right. with distributors, aggregators. We work with filmmakers themselves. So filmmakers can submit. They just go to our website, fearless.li slash for creators, and they can submit there. Basically, we want to make things as easy as possible for filmmakers. So we basically pay what Amazon pays, Amazon Prime. So Right now, our current rate is $0.12 cents USD per hour streamed, um, and we're pretty um, upfront about that. I know that there's other platforms that won't give you that information until you contact them or they'll make you sign an NDA or any of this. I don't believe that that's the way it should be. I think that these things should be upfront and honest and transparent and that you know filmmakers should be paid for their work, quite frankly. So how filmmakers can submit to us, um, the submission process is where uh, the questions come in uh, because we have a curation team. So we have um, some film industry professionals who are volunteers and they review the content that is submitted to us and they decide whether it should be approved or not. The reason that we do this is we want a democratic approach to ensuring that content is responsible. And by responsible, I mean Let's say we have a film or series that is submitted that is not an LGBTQ film or series, but contains negative LGBTQ representation or consider, you know, contains violence against women that is glorified or contains transphobia or contains racism in ways that are, you know, not related to history or a documentary or, you know, reasons that make it clear that those are not endorsed. And right. so we ensure that what, that even the pieces that aren't featuring LGBT, Black, Indigenous, or female content, et cetera, is still at least responsible in the way that they handle those issues. I love that. And what's been the most exciting or surprising thing that's happened since the launch of the app, in your opinion? What's really made you feel good about it? 
I mean, I think the most surprising was the day that we put it on the world and people got behind us. Um, I, I really, I mean, I started from a point of view where I had already made a business before and that one was very, very successful, but it's, it's very different. I was running summer programs for kids. Obviously the parents needed a place for their kids to go. So, you know, and there wasn't a lot of competition in the area. So coming from that, I realized I had made a success before, but I wasn't sure if this one would be the success because I know there's other streaming platforms and, you know, the market's saturated and that sort of thing. And also, I wasn't sure if people would get behind independent content in the way they do Netflix. Because, you know, when you watch independent content, you need to kind of have a little bit of heart to you because you have to realize that these are lower budgets. They're not working with celebrities. They often don't have big stunts or big special effects. And so these are things you need to be aware of that you won't see those things. And that's okay. And so I wasn't sure if viewers would get behind us. And so that was amazing that they did. And <laughs> I'm just, I'm honestly like honored that people have placed so much trust in me and trust in the whole fearless team in general. Um, it's amazing to see because these filmmakers are making amazing products and it's about time they get seen, especially the ones that feature diversity and inclusion. Right. No, exactly. There's some great filmmaking being made out there. And people are becoming more creative by the day. I mean, I believe this pandemic has really brought out some experimental thoughts through Zooms and stage readings and different things that people are going to take these new skills and bring them to filmmaking in the future, I believe. Um, do you think that this downtime for the entertainment industry could actually be a small blessing in disguise, maybe? I mean, a lot of people are out of work, so it's very tough to say it's a good thing. But do you think it could spark some creativity like we haven't seen before? Because the people who know how to spark the creativity are the independent creators. The big studios take long time to make things. Right. They have to have everything approved. They have to, you know, decide with the whole boardroom. They have to have multiple drafts of things. They have to speak with a lawyer and a PR person. And so there's a lot of hoops to jump through. Independent creators don't have to do that. They pick up their camera. They pick up their friends. And they just make something. And that's the beauty of it is that they can make it fast. They can make it extremely meaningful because their message is not watered down by someone else telling them, oh, maybe you shouldn't do that. Maybe you shouldn't do that. And so it's authentic and it's raw. And sometimes it's a little messy around the edges, but it's really real and visceral. And so, yes, I think absolutely it spawns creativity. The other thing that I've been noticing, which is really cool, is that independent filmmakers seem to have been sitting on content. So they filmed something a while ago, but because they're so busy and some independent filmmakers also kind of struggle, you know, because sometimes they have a lot of work and other times of the year they have very little. So sometimes they don't have the money or the time in order to finish projects that they may have started. And during this period, it seems like a lot of filmmakers have had the opportunity to finish editing or finish mastering their projects. And so now they're ready to put it out in the world. So I think the major streaming networks and, uh, and such are going to have a little bit of a struggle to come up with new content. But luckily, from the point of view of Fearless, independent creators are never ending with the content. And it's always creative and new and interesting. So there's a never ending flow of new content. There you go. And I absolutely love that. You've created a wonderful thing, my friend. Let everyone know where they can download that 
and then let them know where they can follow you on social media because you are such a great positive person and really um, I enjoy following your feeds immensely, my friend. Oh, thank you so much. And by the way, the the introduction I got at the beginning of this uh, of this podcast was absolutely amazing. I mean, that was so kind and wonderful the way you described me. Uh, I'm I'm truly honored. So if you want to download Fearless, and um, why wouldn't you? Uh, just search Fearless on the App Store or Google Play, and you'll be able to download it. It works with AirPlay and Chromecast. We have the Apple TV and Roku apps in development, but they're not ready yet. So for now, it's the iOS and, and Android apps. And you can also follow at Watch Fearless on Instagram, Twitter, um, wherever you like to follow people. And uh, if you want to follow me, I'm just at Matt Kai Burmaster. That's M-A-T-K-A-I-B-U-R-M-A-S-T-E-R. Instagram is my biggest, but Twitter is where you go if you want the more interesting or funny little snippets of what's on my mind. There you go. And the app can be cast onto your TV with those two little add-ons, right? So you can get it on. Yeah, with an app. If you have a if you have an Apple TV device, then you can use AirPlay. I believe there's maybe another device that uses AirPlay as well. Or if you have a Chromecast device, you can cast it on your TV with that as well. So, yeah. Very good. Well, Matt Kai, it's been amazing getting to talk to you today. So much for sharing your insights and your talent with us. You have to come back when you have a invite any of your filmmakers to come back and launch their series with us. I appreciate talking to you. Oh, absolutely. For sure. Thanks for having me. All right. You are very welcome. Stay on the line for me, guys. We'll be back in just a little bit. You're listening to the Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight radio network. Just a steel town girl on a Saturday night looking for the fight of her life. In a real time world, no one sees her at all. They all say she's crazy. Locking rhythms to the beat of her heart Changing movement into the light She is dancing to the danger zone And the dancer becomes a dance It can cut you like a knife If a gift becomes a fire On a wire between will and what will be She's a maniac, maniac on the floor And she's dancing like she never danced before She's a maniac, maniac on the floor Oh. 
Alrighty, guys, that's it for tonight. A big shout out and thanks to our guest, special correspondent Enoch Miller from West Hollywood, Dr. D.L. Stewart calling in from Colorado, and of course, Matt Kai Burmaster from Toronto, Canada. And Han, thanks so much for being in the studio tonight. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. It was great. All right. Well, we had Royal had to scoot out after her interview. Guys, we'll be back tomorrow. We got a great interview with Sam Harris, who you might remember won the very first Star Search, and is a great guy on the stage and screen. It's a brand new book out, and we'll be talking with him. And then our good friends Mel and Terry from the Play Electricity are going to be streaming their show this Thursday. So they will be on the show to talk about that tomorrow. And if it's Wednesday, we have our boys from J&J Buzz, Josh and Jeff, right here on the Left of Straight show. Hannah, any last words of wisdom before they kick us out of here? Uh, not really, except everyone has a great week. There you go. We'll be here the rest of the week, 6 o'clock Pacific, 9 o'clock Eastern, next Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Have a great night, guys. Bye-bye.